And as he spoke, his hand passed lovingly over the portfolios that had been emptied of their contents long ago, as if they were living things. I found it terrible, yet at the same time touching, for in all the years of the war I had not seen so perfect and pure an expression of bliss on any German face. Beside him stood the women, looking mysteriously like the female figures in that etching by the German master, who... Coming to visit the tomb of the Savior, stand in front of the vault, broken open and empty, with an expression of fearful awe and at the same time joyous ecstasy. As the women disciples in that picture are radiant with their heavenly presentiment of the Savior's closeness, these two aging, worn, impoverished ladies were irradiated by the childish bliss of the old man's joy. Half laughing, half in tears, it was a sight more moving than any I had ever seen. Hello and welcome to The Overleaf. My name's Sam Tornio, and this is the podcast where I just talk to you for a bit about what I've been reading. The quote you just heard is from Stefan Zweig's The Invisible Collection, a short story which he subtitles An Episode from the Time of German Inflation. So the Invisible Collection was originally published in 1925, and, as the subtitle tells us, appears to be set a few years prior during the period of hyperinflation that ravaged the Weimar Republic after World War I. Near the beginning of the story, the narrator, an art dealer based in Berlin, complains about how, quote-unquote, the value of money started evaporating like gas. Now, this is upending his trade, and it sends him scouring his old business records in search of a bargain acquisition. He ultimately sets his sights on an elderly collector of etchings, woodcuts, and engravings, who lives a train ride away in provincial Saxony with his wife and daughter. But when the dealer pays a visit to this gentleman, he discovers a rather tragic situation. The elderly collector has lost his sight. Now, this is unfortunate enough, but on top of this, unbeknownst to the collector, his wife and daughter, in a desperate coup to avoid utter penury, have gradually been selling off his collection. In order to spare the hapless man his loss, and indeed to pull the operation off at all, the wife and daughter have made sure to substitute in the mount of each print sold a similar sheet of paper, usually blank. And this is because despite the collector's blindness, he still relishes the process of going through the portfolios of the collection, running his fingers over their surfaces, and recalling every line in his mind's eye. Now, when the dealer comes to visit, the wife and daughter only just avoid the collector hauling out the portfolios immediately and flummoxing the dealer into letting the cat out of the bag. It is only after the daughter has brought the dealer in on the deception and implored him to toe the line and not reveal the truth to her father that the dealer observes the collector's ritual. Which brings us back to the quotation you heard at the beginning of the show. Here, Zweig quite cleverly describes the scene before the narrator through an allusion to one of the prints that has been sold, a depiction of the women disciples discovering Jesus' empty tomb. What's curious about this print that's being alluded to here is that Zweig refers to the artist as simply the German master. 
despite having named specific artists like Dura and Rembrandt earlier in the story. So it would seem to me that the implication here is that this German master is Dura. But after a bit of stumbling around on the internet, I've been unable to identify the specific print by Dura, to which the narrator is alluding. What I think is going on here is actually a bit of clever conflation on Zweig's part. Um, I think he's combining the many different etchings of this scene of the women disciples at the empty tomb, and he's crafting it in such a way to get exactly the illusion he wants for this moment in the story. You see, the etching alluded to here depicts a scene prior to the actual appearance of the resurrected Christ. These women are, as you heard in the quotation, radiant with presentiment, not yet actual proof of Christ's resurrection. And I think this moment of near resurrection works rather well alongside the fact that everyone in this scene besides the collector is aware that his collection has been sold off and thus can only experience the reality of the collector's joy and bliss through a kind of faith in the reality experienced within the collector's imagination. What we have here is effectively a promise of the continued reality of the artwork, as well as the happy past life of the collector and his family, and by even broader extension, the continued reality of pre-war German society. In other words, we have the promise of a kind of resurrection of the past that relies solely on the strength of the collector's memories. Now, as I record this, a large portion of the world is under lockdown amid the scourge of the COVID-19 virus. And I think our current circumstance puts us in a unique position to appreciate what Zweig is doing in this story, The Invisible Collection. Much like the elderly collector, who though cut off from his collection by blindness, still sees it and appreciates it through memory, as well as the wife and daughter who suspend their awareness of the truth in order to see through his memory, we too gaze out our windows at our neighbors passing by six feet apart or watch on our phones and laptops scenes of bouillevacked domesticity and empty supermarket shelves. And we see through our memories as well but instead of it being an art collection, it's the world that was once there. Moreover, what is not stated explicitly in the story, but which I think is germane to the Christian overtones at work here, is that because the man believes that his collection has remained intact, there is always the possibility, through a kind of Christ-like miracle, that he might yet regain his sight and thus regain his collection. And I think that in our current state of lockdown, where our day-to-day -day reality has become somewhat of a void socially, flooding us with memories of society in place of actual interaction, we are also all somewhat fooled by this delusion that the loss of our quote-unquote normal world is only temporary, and that through a vaccine, through social distancing, through a stimulus package, through a miracle, that the previous world will somehow be regained. So this begins to look rather bleak, both for the world of Zweig's story and our own. Yet Zweig emphasizes the joy 
of the collector's delusion. And more importantly, how readily this joy is absorbed by the collector's family as well as the dealer. And so I think what Zweig presents is not simply this cruel, bottomless pit of a tragedy, but rather what he's showing is how the grief and vertigo of social collapse, right? The collapse of the framework that allows human life to flourish and have meaning seems to, in its collapse, simultaneously foreground both hope and despair without really offering a way out beyond something like resurrection or transcendence. Essentially, social collapse leaves us with a glut of intangible memories, an absurd cacophony of celebration and pain. Now, Zweig was not a religious man. He was born into a prosperous Jewish family, but in cosmopolitan, rapidly secularizing Vienna at the end of the 19th century. And though he stayed somewhat close to Judaism culturally, he was really more a man of the world, of books and art and salons, swanning about the frictionless borders of fin de siècle Europe by train. Like the art dealer and art collector, who nonetheless collect various examples of sacred art, Zweig and his contemporaries were concerned with aesthetics, psychology, philosophy, not religious edification, worship, or meaning. And of course, all of this defiantly secular artistic and intellectual activity was coincident with the rise of global capitalism, no small matter for the professional writer who relied on the commercial success of his work. In some, this world, Zweig's world, was one oriented toward the material, the objective. Yet Zweig's gilded Middle Europe saw its apocalypse with World War I and was never to return. And despite Zweig's reaching the height of his popularity as a writer in the 20s and 30s, it was also during this time that he saw his world disintegrating into fascism, leading eventually to his exile, first in England, then America, then Brazil, where he and his wife committed suicide in 1942. He details the excruciating experience of watching his homeland crumble around him in his autobiography, The World of Yesterday. But this elegiac orientation toward pre-war Europe undergirds all his work, and the Invisible Collection, specifically the moment we've been exploring, is a perfect microcosm of Zweig's grief, of his mourning for a former reality, a paradise lost. And what makes it such a perfect microcosm is it makes it clear what precisely Zweig was mourning. It certainly wasn't the economy, nor was it even the secularity of the past, despite these both being necessary to the character of that past. The art dealer actually expresses it perfectly near the beginning of the story, when he laments how he is beginning to see art objects as merely wares, as little more than a means to profit. And he is later moved by the bliss of the collector as the collector surveys his memories of the etchings, engravings, and woodcuts. It seems that what the art dealer and what Zweig, and what we under lockdown are all mourning, is quite simply the feeling of belonging somewhere, of a sense of dignity and purpose, of being a defined part of the collection of people who together make up society. So Zweig's use of the Christian concept of resurrection, specifically the faith required to be comforted by resurrection as a promise and not a material reality, 
Well, this seems to be a kind of acknowledgement on Zweig's part that even in a secularized modern context, like Zweig's Fin de Siecle Europe, what really counts is not the objective world so much as the intersubjective framework we build to navigate it. And so the dealer's revelation as he watches the blind man go through his collection is that it was never the actual artwork that mattered, but the fact that it was collected, possessed, cherished. For instance, when someone looks back fondly at, say, a decades-old photograph from high school, there's this uncanny sense of both familiarity and distance. The strange-fitting clothes, the abominable hairstyles, even the particular quality of the photograph itself. And with that come the memories of how people used to behave, how things were done. Uh, Kids could roam the streets. The owner of a local drugstore knew your name. People wrote letters. You watched the news at six and cartoons on Saturday morning. Uh, These are all cliches, of course, more rosy fiction than fact. And they tend to leave out the less palatable truths. But what we see here is that the framework of society, how we exist and interact, resonates with us deeply. And that what we actually mourn are these ways of doing things, ways of being and interacting with others. And it's this loss of a community that we mourn much more so than whatever it was we thought we were accomplishing. You see, it's never just about the way things were. It's the way our things were. Our personal collection of memories. And this deep familiarity with the way the world used to function is what makes us retreat into our memories when the present appears incomprehensible. So in this way, a faith in the miraculous resurrection of the past feels more rational than an acceptance of the present. Now, there is, of course, a danger in our deeply personal, often romanticized attachment to society's past. The past is potent and ripe for exploitation. And so I think it's possible to read a certain irony into the invisible collection, a kind of criticism of the hope these characters feel, which is based on a distorted view of both the past and the present. In this way, Zweig's story feels rather prescient, as it is precisely this bliss attending memory and the resentment that it can breed that the Nazis, for instance, exploited, and which is still exploited today by those seeking power. But again, Zweig is doing a lot at once here, and seems really to be playing with this maddening tension between hope and despair that bubbles up in the wake of social and economic collapse. And I really don't feel like he rightly sees any need to resolve that tension. So as you reminisce over selfies from unsocially distant times past, or the next time you sign into another Zoom video chat with your friends or family's virtual faces side by side in cheerful defiance of the circumstances, you might recall another set of faces in provincial Saxony during the time of German inflation. Those of the wife and daughter of a blind art collector looking on radiantly as he emphatically praises the beauty of a blank sheet of paper. And you might ask yourself how such an absurd tragedy could be bliss. (laughs) 
That's all for this episode of The Overleaf. Join me next time for a little look at Agatha Christie's The Murder of Roger Ackroyd. If you enjoyed listening, please subscribe wherever you listen to your podcasts and maybe give us a rating. Goodbye for now.